0: Playing first you know I mean? You're never going to figure out who's on first, first base because who
1: is on first base? Yeah. You're killing me, Smalls. <laughs>
0: Are you crying? No. Are you crying? Are you crying?
1: There's no crying. There's no crying in baseball.
0: music is the sound of emotion connecting us to ourselves our past and each other music is universal its magic is found deep in the spaces between the notes join us each week as we explore the magic mystery and joy of music welcome to between the notes a podcast about music
1: Hey, folks, welcome to episode number 25 of Between the Notes. My name is Jack Sharkey, and I am joined as always by that last bastion of pleasantness, Bob Bender. Bob, how are you doing this week?
0: I'm just glad you used the word bastion
1: and not something else. Well, that's true. And also, maybe I was conflicted because it took me four takes to say the word bastion. So I'm a little troubled tonight. I'm feeling actually a little embarrassed. So we're in the process of moving. For you folks who have been with the podcast, it's like, dude, you've been moving since March. And that's kind of how it's beginning to feel. So today, I finish up work. I got to go to the storage unit and move some boxes to the new house and blah, 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 blah. And I scarf down some Panda Express. Now, for those of you who know me well, you know that I eat Panda Express Kung Pao chicken probably four to five times a week. It's what I do. It's what I enjoy. But I have a little spot of sweet and sour sauce that I spilled on me right here. And I'm a little embarrassed. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable. And my performance is struggling because of the fact that I'm really self-conscious about the sweet and sour sauce that I'm parading around. Now, my wife and my kids are like, well, I mean, it's what he does. Yeah, what else is new? Right. But to those of you in podcast land, you had some respect for my eating ability uh, up until now. My dear friend, Sarah Fleschner. Sure. Big help. Yeah, big help. Thanks, Sarah. We really love you and appreciate you.
0: 362 Entertainment out of Houston, Texas. She and her folks were in town last week for CMA Music Fest. Okay. She does some work for Pam Tillis, social media for Pam Tillis. Great job. And I was talking to Sarah's dad, uh, Tracy, who said his wife and his daughter stopped at Bucky's, because Bucky's is a big thing in Texas, and they got him a car eating tray
1: that
0: <laughs> now it's designed for little kids that sits in your lap <laughs> but he's rigging a, a strap to work and hang down so maybe next time i go to bucky's i might get that for you you
1: know father's day is coming up we record these in batches and you know if my kids are out there listening maybe you can uh Well, this will actually air after Father's Day, so maybe for my birthday, I can get one of those trays because, you know, I need to stop with the the sweet and sour sauce on my shirt. It's embarrassing at this point. Well, or as I tell my wife, I'm saving it for later. Well, true. You know, at this point, I own probably 20 t-shirts and 18 of them have stains on them. The other two are uncomfortable. So here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, do you know why there is a seventh inning stretch? I don't please tell me. I didn't really either, although I had some ideas. And actually, the truth is nobody really knows because the exact origin of the seventh inning stretch is unknown. But stories go back as far as 1869 of ball clubs exhorting their fans to get up and stretch because they would literally start falling asleep during the game. You know, baseball can be long. Great thing about baseball up until this year when they changed it, it was the only sports entertainment that we had that was developed prior to time, railroad time in particular, becoming uh, the main function of our lives before artificial time came and think about it. Baseball games could just go on forever and ever, which is why they changed the rules and kind of ruined it to put time in there. But at least baseball is kind of watchable again now. Kind of like a NASCAR race with rain delays. Yeah, kind of like just it's Monday morning and we're still racing, right?
0: Or waiting to race because they're still drying the track.
1: Best story about the seventh inning stretch is attributed to our bulkiest president, William Howard Taft, 6'2", 350 pounds. He's a big boy. And apparently he stood up to stretch after a long inning at a game one summer between the Philadelphia Athletics and the Washington Senators. Well, the crowd, seeing the president stand and stretch, thought it was the polite thing to do was to stand up and stretch, and hence now the seventh inning stretch. I think it sounds kind of bogus to me, but I like the story. Now, a lot of you tuned into this podcast because it's called Between the Notes, and you're like, I hate baseball. Baseball is boring. Why are they talking about baseball? Well, we're not. We're going to talk about baseball sort of peripherally, but we're going to talk about the unofficial anthem of baseball, which is, Bob, take me out to the ball game." Right? And I got to tell you, I don't like baseball, and I even know that. But you like Peanuts and Cracker Jack. Well, mm, I I like Dodger dogs. And I know for a fact you don't care if you ever come back. That's
0: true. Right? Yeah. So here we go. In fact, my sister got a hold of me yesterday. As everybody knows, I'm a big NASCAR fan. Right. I love NASCAR. Right. I watch every race religion. I record the races, especially when there's a rain delay. My sister got a hold of me yesterday. God bless her. I love her. She said, hey, what are you doing next weekend? Uh-huh. I'm really not planning on doing anything much. Great. I got tickets for the NASCAR race in Nashville. And I'm thinking, I think I'd rather sit on the couch in my shorts and T-shirt <laughs> And watch the race. seriously. And I'm kind of the same way with baseball. You're taking his hermit thing a little too far, I think. Now, I will tell you this. My wife, Debbie, who we talk about, she loves baseball. Mm -hmm. She really enjoys watching it. I'll sit on the couch and watch it with her while she's enjoying it. But really, the only reason I do that is because she sits on the couch and watches the NASCAR races with me. Now, I probably need to rephrase that. She sits on the couch while I'm watching the NASCAR races and is surfing the Internet mm-hmm. Amazon.com, which is why those trucks keep showing up in front of her house at least <laughs> once a week. I just don't get the sport. I wish I did. I And, you know, back in the day, you know, as a kid growing up, my parents, we used to go to Dodger games, yeah. L.A. Dodgers. I got to see Oral Hersheiser. I got to see. Ron Say, Davey Lopes, I got to see the greats play Fernando Valenzuela. Yeah. You know. Who recently just... No, it was Vita Blue that just passed. You well, know. Fernando, they just retired his number. They just retired his number, yeah. And and I getting that Dodger Dog. You talked about yeah. popcorn and Cracker Jacks. I was a Dodger Dog fan. But growing up and becoming adult, eh. But take me out to the ball game still sticks in yep. my mind. You know,
1: and my kids... Are all baseball fans? My poor wife. She she doesn't like baseball. She doesn't like hockey. But I like baseball and hockey. Have you thought about inviting her over here and she can watch a NASCAR race with me? Uh, she really doesn't like NASCAR. Uh, and I don't mean to be offensive. No,
0: that's okay, because I've got an extra ticket to the NASCAR race, because I don't think my wife is going. What so. is it, Sunday? Uh, a week from Sunday. Yeah, a week after Father's Day.
1: I don't know. Maybe I, we might have to drag her out there, you know? <laughs> so, you know, she puts up with baseball. Uh, I love baseball, but we're not going to talk about baseball too much after this. We're going to talk about the song "Take me Out to the Ball game," because it's not only a baseball anthem, and it was it's an accidental baseball anthem. It was not written to be a baseball anthem. Say that five or six times in two sentences, and it's really hard to do. Um, but it's, in my opinion, the first feminist anthem in popular music, and you're probably sitting there going, "What is he talking about?" Now That's the first thing that popped in my head. What in the heck is
0: Jeff talking about? Again, he
1: comes over to the studio. He sits there for hours and he he just brings up these things. So let's dive in. The song was written in 1908 by a Tin Pan Alley lyricist named Jack Norworth, uh, who was also a vaudeville actor at the time. Tin Pan Alley was a place where people were just paid to write songs. That's what their job was. Kind of like the Brill Building 50, 60 years later. His writing partner, who actually did the music, was a guy by the name of Albert Von Tilzer. And so he's the one that set it to music. But we're going to talk about Jack Norworth right now. By the way, this song was a huge hit when it was released. But you're like, Jack, there's no radio. There's no Spotify. There's none of this stuff. How is it a huge hit? You know, publishing is a very important part of the music business, right? And you you know this, so I don't, you know, because you're in the business. But publishing came not from anything other than the printing of sheet music because that's how you had a hit before radio. It's how you had a hit long after radio was even in the public. People would hear a song at a vaudeville or a town square from a, a you know a traveling band or something and they would go and they would buy the sheet music. And almost every family at that time had at least one member who played the piano. And you know, we kind of laugh at it right now, although I think we could maybe do well if we went back to this. On a Friday or Saturday night, the family would gather around the, the you know carols at the spinet, right? They would gather around the piano, and the one member of the family who could play the piano would play this new hit, and they would sing it together, and you know, it was a whole big thing. That's where publishing came from.
0: Well, even if you didn't know how to play a piano, back then you had piano rolls. You could buy a
1: player, you piano, had if you a player had the, piano if you had yeah. the money,
0: right? I remember as a kid in the late 60s and early 70s forming my first rock and roll bands, And I would go down to the local mom and pop music store that sold violin strings Mm -hmm. and uh, ukuleles and, you know, bows for your cello or your string bass. And they had a section full of sheet music. You could get the latest hit from the latest artist. Yeah. Uh, You know, because back then you didn't have YouTube. Nope. So you usually got the lyrics incorrect. Yep. But you'd buy the sheet music with, you know, written out for piano. And then they'd also put the. The guitar chord charts on right, there, right? And yeah, sheet music was a big thing back in my youth.
1: Colony Music, Forty Eighth and Broadway in Manhattan. My my dad was in bands. He was he was pretty popular, um, show band musician in on the Jersey Shore during the sixties and the seventies, and that's we would make a trip every couple of months to Colony Music which was just bins and bins and bins of sheet music. And it was right across the street, basically, half a block up from Manny's Music, where if you wanted to get something that was high quality and didn't cost you an arm and a leg, that's where you went. So my fondest memories are, you know, as, a, as a guy who was beginning to understand music and was beginning to understand how to read music and all, was rifling through the bins of the sheet music at Colony. It was just amazing.
0: Is Manny's still in business? Gone.
1: Yeah. Wow. Gone. Yeah. Which broke my heart. I I have some gear that I actually some studio gear that I bought at Manny's that I don't use anymore. And I will not get rid of it because it's from Manny's. Right. That's that's going to be a whole nother fun episode that we're going to do. I visited Manny's
0: 1987. Okay, My first trip to New York City. Yeah. And I just fell in love with that place. I could have spent all day there. Yeah. Back in those days, you didn't have the guitar centers. You didn't have the Sam Ash music. You didn't have Sweetwater. Right. You had these mom and pops like Manny's or Don Ware's Music City in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. I would always, I'd always set foot in Don Ware's Music City in San Francisco, hoping beyond hope I would catch a glimpse of Carlos Santana because I had it on authority. That's where he went and got his guitars and his amps. Or like I said, the, the, the music store in my hometown, Glenn's Music, where Glenn was the one that stocked all the sheet music.
1: Every town had one, yeah. and it was awesome, you know, but you got a chance to go into the big city, to the big stores, and all those pictures of all those rock stars on the wall. Yeah. Uh, it was just amazing.
0: Or, you know, uh, I'll give a shout out to a couple others, Coleman's music or uh, Davis, Rick Davis music. Those were those mom and pop operations that you just, you went to, first of all, the service was par excellence right. because the people in there, they owned it. They right. owned the operation. It wasn't some corporate suit telling them what to push for that week. And you just got great service. And they knew what they were talking about. Go into a Sam Ash or a Guitar Center these days and ask them a question about something. And you'll kind of get this glazed over deer in the head like looks.
1: But I digress. While you're digressing, I'm going to give a shout out to two of those stores in Nashville who are still carrying that torch. My favorite store, maybe of my current life right now, is Forks Drum Closet, just an amazing place, and Corner Music, which they used to be together on 12th Avenue before 12th Avenue became what it is now, Right back when it was kind of cool. And they're that kind of store and that kind of place. So to you guys and gals at Corner and at Forks, man, you're doing it for Nashville. We love it. Keep up the fight. That's right. Yeah, that's keep right. Up, keep up the good. Because we fight. need stores like you to yeah. do that. So let's go back. Norworth. He also wrote "Shine on Harvest Moon." Shine on, shine on Harvest Moon, which right? was a great song back in the day. Right? You know, it, a huge, giant hit. And he was uh, he appeared in uh, silent films and regular movies, talkies up until the 1940s. But it was his relationship with his girlfriend slash wife who was also another vaudevillian actor that paved the way for maybe the most popular song ever written after happy birthday and and i say that i i challenge you to find a song that's more popular than take me out to the Ball Game," other than happy birthday and i got a devita <laughs> <But laughs>
0: once
1: but, again
0: i digress
1: right? and you did most certainly <laughs> digress so At the time that Norworth wrote the song, he was in a relationship with a uh, gal by the name of Nora Bass. Hey, I'm allowed to use the word gal. This is 1908, okay? You're right. It's, It's okay to say gal because we're talking 1908. She was a vaudeville performer, and she had a reputation for being... A, an unconventional woman For the time She was way ahead of her times. She was a rebel She uh, flaunted The accepted norms For how a woman Was to behave Not only in public But in business She had a string Of broken contracts She uh, you know She was amazingly talented But she was held back By the powers that be Because she was argumentative You know that was What people thought of her But you know maybe In history In retrospect We can think of her As being a strong You know businesswoman At the time That was unheard of Florence Ziegfeld, we've all heard of the Ziegfeld Follies, was the biggest producer in the world at that time. And she broke contracts with him. But by 1909, she was earning $2,500 a week, which is in 2023, $76,000 a week. So we're talking superstar money here. Which many don't make in a year. In a year. So audience th- audiences, they loved her. For her singing voice and her jokes about her failed marriages, she had five of them, and her Jewish heritage. You know, at that time in 1908, she, you know, was kind of a, you know, an oddity if you were. So, um, big deal that Norworth, who wrote "Take Me Out to the Ball Game," is in this relationship. So, and their relationship was not good. Apparently, you know, according to the biographies that I read, Bays made way more money than Norworth ever made like exponentially more money and apparently she shoved that right in his face on a regular basis and kind of you know contemporary stories say that you know she treated him like a servant and as her lackey and norworth was quite the ladies man and apparently his revenge on Bayes was to follow through on his wandering eye so this was a relationship um not made in heaven shall we say so one day, 1908, summertime, Norworth is riding on a, uh, some stories have it as a trolley, some stories have it as an early subway. In any event, he's on mass transit in Manhattan, and he saw an advertisement for a game that was going to be played that day at the Polo Grounds, which is where the San, uh, the San Francisco Giants, but where the New York Giants played at the time. So now that we know the background of his relationship at the time with this, with this woman, and then we listen to the song and we know the verses of the song. It becomes very interesting and it did not paint the average baseball fan of the day. In fact, let's, because a lot of people don't know the verse. So let's, I'm going to read the, I'm not going to sing the verse because I get enough hate mail as it is. We're going to, I'm going to read the verse. You could always play it on the drums. I could, like in a God But let's not. But um, boom. Here we go. Ready? Katie Casey was baseball mad. Had the fever and had it bad. Just to root for the hometown crew, every Sue, Katie blew. And by the way, a Sue was contemporary slang for uh, like pennies, nickels, dimes, small change. On a Saturday, her young beau called to see if she'd like to go to see a show, but Miss Katie said no, I'll tell you what you can do. You can take me out to the ball game. So it was not written as a baseball song, it was written About a woman who was not your conventional kind of gal at the time. A bit of a free spirit. bit of a free spirit and way, way ahead of her time. Early 1900s, women were beginning to be able to sort of escape the drudgery of being a woman in the 19th century, I guess is the best way to put it. And in fact, this song was not played at a baseball game until 1934. And that was a high school game in L.A., And it wasn't played in the major leagues until later that fall, 1934, at the World Series. But it was a huge, mega hit, right? There were no numbers uh, available to me of, of exactly how much money the song made, but it was tremendous. And so let's think about it. Norworth is in this relationship with... A woman who was certainly ahead of her time, certainly a maverick for her time, and he writes this really cute baseball song about this Katie Casey, who's baseball mad. Women were like really not welcome at baseball stadiums at the time; they were actually frowned on. It was a men's club. You wore the tie, you wore the straw hat, the whole bit. You behaved yourself. It wasn't like going to the ballpark today. And there was a uh, another verse written that I'm not going to go into now. I, I, I took it because it, it's you kind of get the point where you know she's actually scoring the game. She's a baseball fan, this this Katie Casey, right? So it's it's pretty amazing. But we view the song today that's been part of baseball forever, but it's not true. Really, it was 1934 before it was even played at any game. But Bob, do you know that it wasn't until 1971 that it actually became a baseball staple? And if you don't know who Harry Carey is, I know you do, but a lot of people may not. If you're not from the Chicago area or not a baseball fan, you may not. Look him up. He's a treat, he's a lot of fun. But just to keep himself occupied during the seventh inning, he would sing it to himself in the broadcast booth. Well, Bill Veck, who was the owner of the White Sox, and apparently he was a guy all to himself. If we were doing a baseball podcast, we would be definitely talking about him. And I said Veck, but it's Bill Veck. He hit a public address microphone in the booth. So when Carrie, who was a character all of his own, started singing the song, it was broadcast out to the entire stadium unbeknownst to carry well the rest is history as they say right because there's no more iconic image in baseball maybe in america than harry carry with the big glasses and that wonderful midwestern twang that he had singing take me out to the ball game in chicago you know eddie vetter from pearl jam sang take me out to the ball game at a cubs game in the uh, i guess the twenty. Well, i think it was the year that they won the, the world series world right series, anyway. you know it's a big deal So now the fun thing about Carey, he had a bad split from the White Sox uh, before he went on to announce for the Cubs, the Crosstown rival. And Carey was quoted as saying about like the horrible teams that the Sox were really known for at that time that when the talent isn't there, that's when you start singing take me out to the ballgame, which is just, I mean, if you're going to slam somebody, slam the guy that hit a microphone in your broadcast booth and, and that's what you do. I mean, it's brilliant.
0: Which sadly, and I'm a Cubbies fan. If I was going to pick a, a baseball team to watch, I'd watch the Cubbies. Yeah. Why would I watch the Cubbies? Because man, they were the underdogs for like decades. Ever. Yeah. You know. And if I'm going to pick somebody, I'm going to pick the underdog. And I remember Harry Carey with his big kind of bottle cap glasses yeah. singing that he'd stand up there and the crowds would cheer him on while he sang. Man. Root, yeah. And I just thought, you know, this guy's cool. And his son, from what I understand, is an announcer yes. now for the Cubs. Yeah. And he does the seventh inning stretch, yeah. too.
1: There's a wonderful part of American lore. And it all came from a guy riding a subway in 1908, obje- basically writing a song about his wife at the time, placing her in, in the character. So, you know, let's run back to the story about, you know, this is a young woman throwing social convention to the wind. So she can enjoy her favorite pastime, which was baseball, and you know how Norworth was pretty much putting a mirror up to his own personal life at the time had nothing to do with baseball. He saw an advertisement, and he was married to this firebrand of a gal. Again, gal because it's 1908. I'm allowed to say that. Free spirit, free spirit. Yep. And he wrote a song, and we're still singing that song today. It's all going to earworm. Every one of you, even those of you who don't live in the states, are going to get that song earwormed because "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" is the song. Incidentally, uh, Norworth was not a baseball fan; he really could care less, and he didn't see his own—he didn't see a baseball game on his own until 1940 which, you know, 32 years later or whatever it was. But anyway, this is a nice, short, sweet episode because we've been doing a lot of heavy stuff lately, and I just wanted to have some fun. It's summertime. By the time this airs, we're going to be right around the all-star game. Hashtag, hashtag, hashtag for promotion, whatever. Um, but I ran across this story. And I just felt like sharing it because I thought it was a, a lot of fun about this little ditty that has become a serious fabric in American culture. And it's so interesting that you bring this
0: topic of discussion up, because unbeknownst to me, because once again, Jack Sharkey does not send me the scripts until about 30 minutes before we showtime. recorded at
1: 530
0: tonight. And I think he got them at 230. So yeah. good on me. And goodness knows, I'm not going to open the email. Look at it. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> Jack's going to be here in five minutes. I guess I should. You're open no up email the yeah, Exactly. But unbeknownst to you, I had actually written a useless musical trivia for the day based around baseball Which and
1: music. is amazing. I love synchronicity. And I love the fact that um, we're back doing Useless Musical Trivia of the Day. So, Bob, I'm going to hand it over to you to talk to us about some trivia here.
0: Herein lies your Useless Musical Trivia for the Day. The California Angels Baseball Stadium, also known as the Big A. Been there. Love it. Has been the home of the Anaheim Angels, also known as the California Angels. A major league baseball team, and for a very short period of time, was also the home stadium of the Los Angeles Rams from 1980 to 1994. Now, that goes, you know, St. Louis, LA, LA, St. Louis, St. Louis, the Rams couldn't figure it out. Located only three miles from Disneyland, in which, by the way, the Walt Disney Company was a minority owner from the inception of the California Angels. It was also where evangelist Billy Graham held two crusades, along with two to three AMA Supercross championships every year in Angel Stadium. Originally, it was 160 acres of prime agricultural farmland, which there's going to be a reason I say that. The stadium was constructed 57 years ago in 1966. Now, Los Angeles. On January 17th, 1994, Angel Stadium was rocked by the Northridge earthquake, which is interesting because if you're from Southern California, Northridge is the San Fernando Valley. Anaheim mm-hmm. Stadiums, Orange County. It's quite a distance. It's 60 so some odd miles apart, causing the left field jumbotron screen to collapse onto the upper deck seats beneath it. As the Rams, the football team, and the Angels, the baseball team, were both out of season and it occurred in the pre-dawn hours, nobody was injured, thankfully. But the stadium has also been used for other purposes. It's been the perfect outdoor venue for such rock concerts as ZZ Top, the Rolling Stones, Aerosmith, Leonard Skinner, Boston, Kiss, Pink Floyd, and Alice Cooper, just to name a few. However, barely a decade old in 1976, the Big A, as the stadium was known, recorded its largest crowd up to that point when 55,000 stomping and screaming fans jammed the baseball facility to see Pete Townsend, Roger Daltrey, John Entwistle and Keith Moon, also known as The Who, the Who play their classic hits on the baseball field. The stadium in itself holds at a capacity of 45,000 for their baseball games. So now imagine you got 10,000 over that. Unfortunately, those thousands of fans left 10 tons of litter for stadium workers to clean up in its aftermath. They also left something else behind. In addition to the trash left by those attending the concert, stadium officials estimated that approximately 100 marijuana plants sprouted in the outfield <laughs> as a result of those attending the show as manager of anaheim stadium tim legler i hope i'm saying his name right legler legler as manager of anaheim stadium tim legler put it at the time what we've got out here is grass in the grass <laughs> quote unquote <laughs> it was never confirmed what type of marijuana that was growing nor whether or not it was uprooted or harvested After all, it is California. Therein lies your useless musical (laughs) trivia for the day.
1: That's crazy. And, you know, yeah, wouldn't you love to know what happened? Did they just mow them down? Did they cut them? Oh, I have a feeling there were a couple um, groundskeepers Uh, that were like, hey, honey, I got a plant. Look, I got a bonus from the uh, California Angels today. Listen, folks, thanks for joining us for episode number 25 of Between the Notes. Next week, like a couple of teenagers in love, we're going to celebrate our six-month anniversary, and we're going to loop back to not episode number one, but to episode number two, and we're going to discuss some new science that suggests that our brains begin to operate as one when we're listening to or playing music, which I found utterly fascinating, and hopefully I can do it justice, and you'll find it as fascinating as I did. If you haven't listened to episode number two, please go back and check it out. It's called Your Brain on Music, and next week's episode is called Our Brains on Music. In fact, you know what? Now's a good time to go back and listen to all the episodes you may have missed. If you're new to the show, uh, you can kind of catch up with what we're doing and what the madness is. And one of the things I'm finding would be most fun is to see how the show has evolved. And we are doing that with a bunch of help from all of you folks out there. Meanwhile, thanks so much for hanging out with us. We really, really appreciate all of you. If you like what we're doing here, please tell your friends. If you haven't started following us on Spotify, please do so. It really helps. If you don't like what we're doing here, like, seriously, what's the point? Why are you even here? Please check us out on Facebook. Two weeks, we're going to be doing Facebook Live during recording. So that should be fun. You get to, and we're, we're going to go unedited on, on Facebook Live. Oh, my God. So when, you know, I have trouble saying the word Bastion, you know, five and six and seven times, you're going to get to see that. It's really like make, watching sausage get made. I can't wait for that. Um, so that's going to be at podcast between the notes on Facebook. At Twitter, we're going to be between notes pod. And you can check out my odd adventures on Instagram at the real Jack Sharky Bob, what do you got going on over there?
0: When you get done listening to between the notes podcast, may I suggest, and this is merely a suggestion. This is a suggestion, check out business side of music. And check out Two Dudes Talk Money and Music. Interestingly enough, on Two Dudes Talk Money and Music, the last couple episodes, we haven't really been talking about money. We've just been talking about music. Music, yeah. Yeah, we've had some great guests on the show who've kind of shared their insight and wisdom on... Fascinating stuff, yeah. ...what it's like to work in the music business, and uh, you might actually find it to be um,
1: interesting, if not educational. I have uh, personally been loving every minute of it. Folks... We'll see you next week. Thanks so much.
0: Between the Notes was created by Jack Sharkey and is a Lotta Dogs production. Between the Notes is produced by Bob Bender and written by Jack Sharkey and is recorded at Music Dog Studios in Nashville, Tennessee. Graphics were created by Hand Draw and Jack Sharkey. Title music was created and produced by Harvey Music and Motion Audio. All content is copyrighted and owned by Lotta Dog Productions, Jack Sharkey and Bob Bender.